It gives you a chance to say, I love you. It's really an experience of intimacy in those moments. The thing, the, the thing to see is that this experience, which really what we're talking about is repentance, uh, confession. I'm going to use those two terms interchangeably in, in our sermon this morning. But in a relationship, whenever people say I'm sorry to one another, whenever they hurt each other, and then in response, the other person learns how to say, I forgive you or I love you. That experience in a relationship is really the currency of intimacy in a relationship. That's how intimacy is created in a relationship. Oftentimes we think that, that in order to preserve a relationship, we need to avoid conflict. That's not actually true. If you avoid conflict in a relationship, there will be no intimacy. Of course, it's, it's very risky to engage in conflict in a relationship. But when you do and you learn how to then practice repentance and forgiveness, I'm sorry, I forgive you, that is what creates depth and intimacy in a relationship. This morning we're continuing in our series in prayer. Throughout the summer we're talking about prayer from all kinds of different aspects, looking at what is prayer? What are all the different facets of prayer? What does it look like? And we've, we've covered a lot of different things. We've talked about prayer as, as praise and, and um, uh, as worship. We've talked about it as uh, all kinds of different aspects. But this morning, what we're going to talk about is prayer as confession, as repentance. Again, we're going to use those interchangeably today. Now, as we think about that, the question is, does that often mark our prayers? Is repentance a regular part of our prayer life with God? Or is it, only, is it only a part of our prayer whenever we've blown it big? You know, whenever you blow it, you know, you did it again, it's, you messed up. And of course, then in prayer, it might be characterized by confession and repentance. But what about as a regular, ongoing practice? a regular part of the way that our relationship with God has deepened. Now, very often we avoid repentance. We avoid confession. But what we'll see in our passage this morning is that repentance and confession and prayer with God regularly is what deepens and creates intimacy with God. Do you ever feel like in your relationship with God that it's cold, that it's distant, that, that it's not marked by deep, Emotion and feeling? Well, likely it's because of the absence of repentance in your prayer life. That's what we're going to talk about this morning. Now, I want to say this before we get into our passage. There are some of us in here, probably lots of people in us, of us in here, who think, I am too bad in order to be totally and completely forgiven by God. I've blown it too big. I've trampled His name too much. I've, I've, I've done things too bad in order to be fully and totally forgiven by God. Many of us probably think that. If you're thinking that, and probably most of us think it in little small ways in our life, the corners of our hearts where we think, I've done things so bad, there's no way I could ever know total, complete forgiveness with the Lord. Well, I just want you to understand this as we come to our passage. We are about to enter in and listen to and see the prayer of a man who has just committed adultery, and then in order to hide and cover up that adultery, 
he has just committed murder. Murder. And then, in order to hide and cover up all of that, he lives in denial for at least a year, okay? And the whole time, he is pretending to be the righteous king of Israel that is leading God's people in worship. It's pretty bad, right? We're about to hear the prayer of repentance of a man who meets the unlimited, incredible grace of God in prayer and is changed right on the spot and experiences deep intimacy like that. He doesn't have to work his way back into the relationship. Through repentance, he's restored to God in spite of all of that. Now, how do we know that is the case of the person writing this psalm? Well, it tells us. Is a part of the passage, the prescript of the psalm. It's that little background section right before the psalm starts underneath the heading. We read, For the director of music, a psalm of David, when the prophet Nathan came to him after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. So let me just run through the story really briefly. This takes us back to 2 Samuel chapter 11. King David, up until that point, was just the glowing picture of the righteous king who led God's people in faithfulness. And we read in that section that he sends his army off to war, but David stays back. And one evening, he's on the roof of his palace, and he's taking an evening walk, and he sees a very beautiful woman who's bathing on her rooftop. And he makes a critical choice. He decides he's going to begin to learn more and inquire more about her. And one thing leads to another, and finally, he learns that this is actually the wife of one of his most loyal senior commanders in his army. And yet David makes a critical choice. He sends for her. She comes to his palace. He commits adultery with her, receives her into his bedroom, and then sends her back. Not long after that, word comes, she's pregnant. David realizes that he's caught. So what does he do? He doubles down. He doubles down on the sin and he says, I've got to find a way to cover this up. One thing leads to another and he has Uriah, her husband, one of his most loyal commanders, he has him killed. He sends him to the front line in a critical battle where he knows that he'll be struck down. Murder. He is struck down, he takes Bathsheba into his home as his wife, and he lives for a year covering it all up. But Samuel tells us there's something very critical in that passage. But what David had done displeased the Lord. He had hid it from all kinds of people, but the Lord saw. And after a year of living in self-righteousness, God sends the prophet Nathan to confront David He does it in a very brilliant way. He comes to David and he tells a story about a rich man who takes something very precious from a poor man. And David hears this story and in his self-righteousness, he is moved to anger and he says, that man deserves to die. And Nathan looks at him right in the eyes and he says, you are that man. And David is instantly struck with the reality of his life and what he has done. And it is in that moment that he writes this psalm. A beautiful picture of repentance. 
So keep that background in mind as we read these words. This is not a man who cussed or went to an R-rated movie or, or you know, messed up in some small way. This is a man who has committed adultery and murder and covered it up for at least a year. And I want us to see two basic things in this psalm. One is we see a picture of repentance. And this is the model picture of repentance. We see David diving into God's mercy. That's what we see here. Look again at the passage. As David begins, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions, wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. What is David doing? David dives headlong into God's mercy, seeking forgiveness for his sin. David knows that fundamentally what he needs is not a change of circumstances. Fundamentally what he needs is is not for things to be fixed in his life more than anything else. David is struck with the reality of his sin and he knows that more than anything, he needs to be forgiven of his sin. And that's what he's pleading for. And that's what repentance is. It's a diving into God's mercy in order to be forgiven totally and completely by the Lord. And just notice the boldness of this guy. I mean, he has committed adultery and murder, but yet here he is with the audacity to go before God and saying, I want you to blot it out. He says that twice. To blot out the transgressions has the sense of blotting out in a scroll. If you'd imagine a a legal scroll, a ledger that had record of sin and wrongdoing and law-breaking, and and, and, and the image there is of a sin that is recorded before God that brings legal guilt, and David is saying, blot it out. Take your blotter pen and make it go away. It's another way of David saying, erase my sin. Remove it. Throw it into the heart of the sea. He's seeking forgiveness from the guilt of sin. That's very much a a real aspect of sin is that it brings guilt. The, The breaking of a command, the sinning against God brings a legal guilt, but there's also another aspect in which he seeks forgiveness here, and it's that of cleansing. Did you notice that repeated over and over in here? Wash away all my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. Verse 7, cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. That's a reference in the Old Testament to how someone who, with, with leprosy would be cleansed through a, a hyssop branch and blood that is applied. Cleanse me and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. What an amazing thing that David is asking for here in light of all that he's done He goes before the Lord and says, I want to be cleansed all the way down to the bottom. A very real aspect of sin is that it brings moral corruption. It brings a stain. It brings an uncleanness. This is the sense of sin that we all know very deeply. Yes, we know what it's like to feel guilty. That is the sense that I've done something wrong. But we also all know the sense of shame. They're very closely related, but at the same time, very different. Where guilt says, I've done something wrong, shame is far deeper. Shame is the sense that I am wrong. There's something deeply stained and wrong at the very core of who I am. 
not just I've done wrong, but there's something wrong with me. That is a very real aspect of living in a broken world and being sinners as we all are. But yet David has the audacity to go and say, wash me and scrub me all the way down at the bottom. Why would he be so bold to seek total and complete forgiveness from the Lord? And here's why. He is confident in staking it all on God's mercy and nothing of himself. Did you see that throughout throughout the psalm? His appeal is not to anything in himself. He doesn't go and say, Lord, you know, I'm, I'm really going to be serious this time. I'm really going to do my best. I know I did that, but I'm not going to do it again. I'm serious. Forgive me because, you know, it wasn't really that bad. And, and she shouldn't have been taking a bath on her roof for crying out loud, okay? He doesn't in any way try to make himself more worthy of forgiveness. Rather, he comes and stakes all of his forgiveness upon the mercy of the Lord. Do you see that? Have mercy on me. On what basis? According to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. You see, David's confidence in forgiveness has nothing to do with himself and everything to do with the free grace and mercy of the living God. That's his only hope. And the reality is the same is true for every one of us. We so often think, I can be forgiven, I can be washed, I can be made right with God based upon how good I'm doing, how sincere I am, how hard I'm going to try next time, how I'm not nearly as bad as all these other people. We have so many techniques of recommending ourselves to God for forgiveness. You see, the reality is, None of those things can wash away sin. The only thing that can bring cleansing, that can blot out sin, is the free grace of God. It is entirely of His mercy. And if it's, if it's entirely of Him and nothing of me, who gets all the glory? Him. Repentance is fundamentally a diving into the mercy of God. So repentance has always got to be preceded by faith. Repentance has always got to be rooted in a confidence in who God is, that He is a God of mercy and grace and tremendous compassion. Otherwise, you can't repent. There's no confidence to come before a holy God. But the more deeply we become convinced of His mercy, the more boldly we can come in repentance. So repentance is diving to God's mercy, but also, secondly, repentance is total honesty before God. Do you see that here? Look at verse 3 again. Notice how David comes and he just completely opens and bears his soul before the Lord. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is always before me. There's no minimizing. There's no saying, you know, yeah, I did it, but really I was tempted into it, and, and it was in a moment of weakness. He doesn't say any of that. He says, I know my sin. It's ever before me. I see it all, and I bring it before you, and I lay it out. And then in verse 4, he says something very interesting. He says, against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. That's an interesting thing to say to someone who has just committed 
adultery, and murder, which are clearly against other people. What's he talking about here? Is he minimizing that? Absolutely not. But he is recognizing in the moment that ultimately, my sin is not against another person, ultimately. All sin is ultimately against the living God. All sin is ultimately a breaking of the relationship between us and God. All sin is ultimately a sin against His grace and love. See, what motivates repentance is not a fear of punishment. It's not a sense that I've broken the rules. What motivates true, deep repentance is the fact that I have sinned against a loving God with whom I share a relationship. I've broken His heart. That is the sense of true repentance. And as David comes here, there is total honesty before the Lord to say, I've sinned against you. There's not one ounce of covering or hiding or justifying or, compare, or comparing himself to anyone else. I've sinned against you. And then he goes on to say this. Verse 5, Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. You see, he continues to go deeper and deeper and deeper. He now goes beyond the physical acts of sin that he is repenting of and he has just confessed. And now he begins to go to his very nature. It's as if David is saying, I did this. I committed adultery and murder. It was against you. But that's not even the, the whole thing. It's much deeper than that. You see, the reality is, I am sinful down deep in my nature. Surely it was at birth that I became a sinner. From the very beginning, it was a nature that I inherited. You see, the Bible's perspective on sin is that it's not just actual acts of sin that makes us a sinner, but it's rather the corruption of our soul that makes us a sinner. It's an identity. We tend to have the idea about humanity and even ourselves that we're basically good. You hear this a lot, you know, like whenever these tragedies happen in our nation, they seem to happen like weekly now, where some crazy person goes and murders innocent people. And usually the story is the same. Usually a neighbor or a friend steps up and they say, listen, I knew this person. This even happened with the, the killer in Chattanooga. Neighbors and friends stepped up and said, listen, I knew this guy. He was a good person. He was humble. He was gentle. You know, th this, is, this is not consistent with this person at all. Don't you regularly hear this? You see what's behind that? They're really a good person. Something must have just happened in the moment. Something totally out of character. You know, you like, you like trip and you slip and all of a sudden you kill ten people. You know, it could happen to anybody. But that's not the perspective of the Bible. The Bible tells us that sin goes so much deeper than isolated actions. So that whenever we commit actual sins, we're actually acting according to our nature. And it's as if David, in the depths of his honesty before God, would come and say, you know, I did this, but there's no telling what I'm capable of. If I'm desperate enough, and if given the opportunity, there's no telling, because the reality is, I'm sinful all the way down to my core. Total and complete honesty. That is repentance. What we see here in David is a beautiful picture 
A beautiful picture of a man who comes and throws himself at God's mercy. But as we think about repentance, this is not often what we think of whenever we think of the word repentance. Right? We more often than not, as we think of that word repentance, is very negative. We think of um, beating ourselves up enough to get God's sympathy and convince Him that we're really sorry about it. I mean, do you ever think of repentance as being convincing God how sorry I am so that He'll be moved to take pity on me and forgive my sins? I do this all the time. What happens whenever you blow it big and you have to repent? You know, it's like, is it like this right here? You know, it's like, I'm going to beat myself. I'm going to drag myself through the mud. It's like, what are we doing there? We're, we're punishing ourselves before God so that maybe He will be convinced that we're sorry enough so that He will come and forgive our sins. What's ultimately happening whenever we do that? You know, whenever we make the promises, Lord, I'm going to be extra good. I'm going to pray extra long. I'm going to go serve some people. I'm going to love some people. I'm, I'm, I'm not going to do this. And, and the, the more successful that we are at that, the more loved we feel by God. But yet then whenever we blow it big again, we think somehow we're distant again. We've got to work our way back into, His, back into His good graces. You see, all of those things are an attempt to pay for our own sins. It feels humble, doesn't it? Doesn't it feel humble whenever you blow it and you're just killing yourself? and I'm terrible, and I'm awful, and I'm horrible, and I'm the worst person, it feels incredibly humble, but in reality, it's deeply prideful. Because what's happening in our hearts whenever we do that, we're attempting to pay for our own sins. You see, repentance is something entirely different from that. You see, if that's our view of repentance, then repentance is going to be something that we avoid at all costs. In fact, so often we avoid sin just so that we can avoid Jesus. We avoid sin so that I don't have to repent. Because isn't that the whole goal of the Christian life? Of not being in a place where I have to come to God and say, I need your mercy, it's all I've got, I'm a broken sinner, but you're a God of grace, forgive me. It's like we do all that we can to avoid that place. And so often our good living is motivated by that. I don't have to repent. If that's your view of repentance, we will not repent. We will do all that we can not to repent. But here's what's free. God longs for our repentance. We see it right here in the psalm. You see that in verse 16 and 17? As David has moved through this, this psalm of repentance, and you begin to see the fires of his heart are warm towards God, he's filled with, with delight and worship in the psalm. And then he gets down to verse 16 and he says this, You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. God, what you ultimately want is not my goodness, is not my religiousness, is not my devotion, is not for me to do things for you. If that's what you ultimately wanted in this moment, I would do it. But I realize that's not what you ultimately want. What you want, verse 17... The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart of God you will not despise. That is good news. And we hardly believe that. It is so freeing if we began to believe that. That God is magnetically drawn to brokenness. That whenever I repent, and repentance is like, 
is the act of becoming broken before God and receiving His mercy. If that's what God wants, how freeing is that? That what He wants is not my performance and my goodness and my squeaky cleanness. He wants a broken heart that comes before Him, that opens everything up, that is totally honest and says, all I have is your grace and I receive it. I'm broken. I'm needy. I need you yet again, O God of grace. That is what God longs for. And it is through that experience of regular, continual repentance that intimacy with God begins to deepen. The prayer of repentance is the doorway to intimacy with God. Let me try to illustrate this just in relationships we're all familiar with. So with Ashley and I, very much we've experienced this in our marriage. Whenever we first married and and really throughout our marriage, one of our biggest struggles has been um, the lack of intimacy provided by uh, our holding back from one another. What I mean by this is we were always nice to one another. We never fought. Now, most people, whenever, most couples, whenever you don't fight, you think, hey, that's wonderful. We never fight. Well, it can be, but sometimes you don't fight because two people are unwilling to be totally seen in front of the other person. So you're always holding back. You're never letting them see what you're really thinking or feeling because whenever two people are in a relationship, and this works with friends too, even if you're not married, two people in a relationship are going to fight because always in any kind of relationship, you have two sinners in the relationship. And that means that their own selfishness is going to be bumping against one another. And that results in conflict. But sometimes in a relationship, two people are afraid of conflict. They're afraid of testing the relationship. That's what conflict does. It puts the relationship to the test. It can be scary to allow conflict to happen. Is it going to hold? Or is it going to be broken? So Ashley and I in our marriage would always hold back. You know, if we didn't like something that the other person was doing, or if we were thinking something that we thought would displease the other person, we would hold it to ourselves, and it was blocking intimacy in our relationship. But we had a couple that we were really close with. This was, we lived in Oxford, Mississippi for about six months. We got really close to this couple. They were married about the same time that we were. Very strong believers, but they were very different. They fought, buddy. I mean, they were, they were both passionate people. They were both type A people. You know, they're not the kind of people that are going to hold back anything. And they would throw down. I mean, that's another issue. But they would fight fireworks all the time. But here's what we begin to see in their relationship. Because of that conflict, and as they were committed to repentance, as they were committed to over and over and over saying to one another, I'm sorry and I forgive you. Now you can imagine if they're conflicting like that, they're saying that a ton to each other. And not just a flippant like, I'm sorry, but like, I'm really sorry I've hurt you in this way. It had begun to create a deep intimacy in their relationship. An intimacy that Ashley and I began to see and really long for. I can remember one time we went out to eat with this couple and we're sitting there at the table and they just kind of get lost in each other's eyes. You know, they're, just, they're sitting next to each other and it's like we're not even there. They're just, they're just talking baby talk to each other. And it was pretty awkward. And Ashley and I remember sitting there, we were sitting there and we were like, so, uh, how about that weather? Hey, you decide what you're going to order? 
huh? What you think about the stake there? You know, it kind of being with them kind of highlighted the lack of depth in our relationship. And what we began to see is because we're always holding back from one another, we were not able to experience the depth of intimacy. Because here's where intimacy comes. Intimacy comes when in my vulnerability, I'm received by you. You see, in any kind of relationship, you're going to hurt one another. And if you're in relationship with God, let me tell you something. You're going to hurt Him constantly. And so if you're never real before God, if you're always pulling back and and pretending as you're better than you are, and therefore there's not much repentance, this is how deep your relationship with God is going to be right here. But if you begin to get in touch like David with the very depths of your brokenness, the very depths of how you regularly and constantly sin before the living God, there's going to be enormous capacity for repentance and thus intimacy. Because intimacy only happens whenever I am at a place of vulnerability where you have the ability to reject me, but yet in that moment you receive me. You shouldn't receive me. I don't deserve to be received, but yet you receive me in spite of it. Like Rex is saying, you say in that moment of vulnerability, yes, you've done this, but I love you anyway. If if you avoid that in a relationship, you will not experience intimacy. And here's the thing. We avoid intimacy with God because we avoid repentance. It's how it's created. And so the the prayer of intimacy is the way, the the prayer of repentance is the way into intimacy with God. So let me close with this. I just want to take us to the gospel and say, how does the gospel impact our repentance? And first to say this, the gospel deepens and empowers and emboldens our repentance. You know, as we look at Psalm 51, this this tremendous picture of repentance, the only way for God to answer this prayer is through Jesus. It's the only way. The only way for God to look upon David, a murderer, an adulterer, and everything that's underneath that, and yet wash him and blot out his transgressions, the only way is if someone else pays for those things. And you see, that's exactly what God did in the gospel. Is that He sent His Son, who was the only clean one. The only one who is as white as snow. The only one who could stand before a holy God. He sent Him to be treated as a wicked sinner. He sent Him to be treated as one who was stained all the way down to the very bottom. And yet, His judgment fell upon Him so that we might be received so that we might be washed. It's the only way. The only way for us to have confidence to come into the presence of a holy God and confess with that boldness is through the work of Jesus. Now here's how believing and understanding that more deeply deepens repentance. The gospel shows me how accepted I am in Christ. Because as I look at Christ, as I look at the fact that the Son of God, who was perfect and righteous and yet also divine, was crushed on the cross, 
that God's wrath was poured out upon him, I see the completeness and the totality of my forgiveness. As I look at the cross, I see I can never again be condemned for my sin. That's what it says. If I am in union with Christ, I have been washed clean. I am seen as righteous in the eyes of a holy God, and it was completed entirely upon the cross. So as I look at the gospel, I am assured of my forgiveness in spite of all that's true of me. So the gospel gives you a boldness in repentance. It gives you a tremendous freedom to come before God and be absolutely honest. To come into His presence with confidence and confess absolutely anything. Because anything you confess has been removed and washed and thrown into the heart of the sea by the gospel. But yet at the same time, the gospel deepens our repentance by showing us how deep our need of His grace is. As we look into the gospel, we see my sin is so great that only the death of the Son of God can rescue me. We might think, and we often do, I'm not that bad. Yeah, in my past I had... I had a few struggles in my past. I got a few habits in my life, but I'm kind of getting there. And all I need is just a little boost up. We tend to think of the gospel as just giving us that little last boost. But as we look at the gospel, we see God killed His perfect Son in our place. You know what that says to every one of us? No matter how righteous or good we might think that we are, I'm so broken and I'm so sinful that only that could rescue me. You see how that begins to unlock repentance? It's not just the acts of murder and adultery that are on our hands. It's the lust in our heart. It's the anger towards our brother. You see, the gospel gives us both the freedom to begin to repent like that and the humility to repent like that. Because as I look into the gospel, I see more and more deeply, I am far worse than I even realized. But at the same time, more loved and accepted in Christ than I could ever dare to dream at the same time. And so the gospel leads us into this cycle of seeing your sin more and more deeply. And as you see your sin, you see ever more deeply how tremendous and outrageous is the grace of God in Christ, which then frees you to see more deeply your sin which then shows you more and more and more how deep His grace is for you. It becomes a dynamic of intimacy and growth in life. Repenting in and through the gospel is how we grow and how we experience intimacy with God. So here's our application, our practice of this today. We're going to celebrate communion. And communion is the table of intimacy. At communion... We are meeting with the living Christ through His Spirit and experiencing intimacy with Him. At communion, we get closer to Jesus than in any other place. And it is at communion that we are reminded of His washing, of the blotting out of all of our transgressions, of His saving grace as we take Jesus into ourself through the the bread and through the wine and as we're empowered through His Spirit to be changed through Him. Each time that we come to communion, we begin with a prayer of confession, a prayer of repentance. So we're going to do that together. If you would grab your hymnals here, and on the first page there's a couple 
prayers of repentance. We're going to pray the second prayer together. This is a corporate prayer of confession together. Now this, see this prayer of confession as loading our hearts for communion, preparing us, getting us in touch with our deep need of His grace and then receiving it at the communion table. And let me encourage you, as we pray this together, don't let it just be a rote thing that we do. Okay, we all say this together. Make this the prayer of your heart. Own the very things in this prayer that are true of you, whether you realize it or not. So let's pray together as we come to His table. The second prayer. Merciful God, You pardon all who truly repent and turn to You. We humbly confess our sins and ask Your mercy. We have not loved You with a pure heart, nor have we loved our neighbors as ourselves. We have not done justice, loved kindness, or walked humbly with You, our God. Have mercy on us, O God, in Your loving kindness. In Your great compassion, cleanse us from our sin. Create in us a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within us. Do not cast us from Your presence or take Your Holy Spirit from us. Restore to us the joy of Your salvation and sustain us with Your bountiful Spirit to the glory of Your name and for the sake of Your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Now take a few moments to confess your sins silently to the Lord.